I'm Jacob Schatz. And I'm Bryce Miller. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Atlas. Today, we're going to stray from the usual path of our favorite formats. You probably know that Jacob and I like Commander quite a lot. For me, I'm playing it weekly, sometimes multiple times a week. In fact, I once realized that given how often I've talked about playing Commander in my journal, I play Commander on average every three days. And that's not even counting number of games. I probably play an average of like a game every two or three days, which is terrifying. In any case, we're not here for Commander. We're here to talk about Modern. Frankly, this is a concept that I know Jacob and I have discussed doing, and I was surprised to learn that I don't think we have. We're going to take today to discuss a couple of defining characteristics of Modern as a format, and then go into talking about some of the decks. Now, caveat, Jacob and I play very little Modern. In fact, I haven't played Modern in months, maybe more. That said, a number of our friends do, and we do like to follow the metagame. We're not equipped to tell you how to play a given deck. We're not equipped to give you play-by-plays. We can't say, ooh, that was a good choice or a bad choice for the most part. But what we can do is contribute our base-level understanding with our classic Talking Atlas charm. If you, like us, are a beginner to the modern format, this podcast is going to be great for you. If you're not a beginner, this might be a little tedious. But also, you can point at us and laugh at how base-level our understanding is. I actually, I do feel like I have a decent knowledge of how a given deck baseline operates. That's not too hard to grok. The nitty-gritty of competitive modern is really in the nuances that aren't really useful to talk about unless you have an expert who can go into very granular detail. And that's the sort of thing that I imagine you could talk a whole podcast about. You know, the affinity archetype. You could go on forever on just that archetype. And that's one of the fun things about modern. There's actually a lot of like you said, granularity to the decks. One person's affinity deck isn't going to be exactly the same as another person's affinity deck. The format isn't completely figured out in any sense. And that's exciting to watch. And that's also where a lot of the strategy comes into modern. If you follow any amount of modern news, you see that decks come in and out of favor. There are times where a classic archetype, like let's say, let's take affinity for example. Affinity is an artifact aggro deck that we'll talk about a little bit more later on. It's also a personal favorite of mine. Affinity isn't always well-postured. It's almost always around, but it ebbs and flows. There are times where it might win a modern Grand Prix, and there are other times where it shows up hardly at all. To start things off, we're going to talk about some broad strokes of modern metagame, the gameplay, how the format's defined, and also give you some terminology so that when we use them in this and probably later follow-up episodes, we're not just going to overwhelm you with terms. To start us off, Modern is often described as a turn four format. What this means is that a deck that is playable in Modern shouldn't win before turn four. This is a sort of hard cap on what kinds of... uh, Degenerate is a strong word, but in some cases they have been degenerate decks and whether or not they're allowed in the format. And this is usually turn four on average. There are some decks that might be able to kill you turn three, but they won't do it reliably. If a deck can kill you reliably on turn three, there's a very good chance that it would get the axe. This should give you an idea of the speed of modern. 
a more powered format like Legacy or Vintage, the games can end much earlier, and that's fine. The ban list doesn't try to stop decks from winning on turn 3, because it will happen. This establishes a pace for aggro decks, for how long a combo deck has to combo out. And in fact, let me give a quick overview of those turns, because I bandy them around without necessarily thinking. Most decks can be broadly classified into one of four archetypes. Aggro, midrange, control, and combo. Aggro, it's short for aggressive. You're going to be turning a lot of dudes sideways very early. You're going to be using burn spells to damage your opponents. Midrange is in between aggro and control. Go figure. Usually it will have some more impressive but higher costing creatures that it will use to grind you down. Or perhaps it has a slightly controlling strategy where it will use those creatures to win as they've gotten you sort of pushed into a corner. A lot of times with midrange you also have hand disruption, so discard, as a way of trying to stifle some more of the aggro plays, and then you have bigger dudes that can soak up damage really easily. Control plays the long game. Many control decks will use board wipes and many varieties of counterspells to try to hold you off until they have succeeded in having more cards in hand and access to more resources than you, and then they kill you. And finally, combo is based around either a really strong synergy or in some cases an infinite combo, where once you assemble the right pieces, you will gain infinite life, you will deal infinite damage to your opponent, etc. When you look at a lot of modern decks, you're going to notice a pattern in the mana base. Modern decks tend to use fetch lands and shock lands. Fetch lands are lands that you can tap, pay one life, and sacrifice them to go and search for one of two different basic land types. And the best thing about fetch lands is that they don't search for a basic land of that type and get into the battlefield. They search for a land with that type. For example, Misty Rainforest is the blue-green fetch land. It has tap, pay one life, sacrifice it, search your library for a forest or island card, and put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Temple Garden is the green-white shock land. It's a land of type forest plains. As it enters the battlefield, you may pay two life. If you don't, it enters the battlefield tapped. So in a, let's say, bant, a blue-green-white deck, you will likely have a variety of shocklands and fetchlands, including Misty Rainforest and Temple Garden. In that deck, your Misty Rainforest can get you a Temple Garden, because it fetches forests, and Temple Garden is a forest. You can access a lot of different colors, depending on your mana base, with just a combination of fetches and shocks. Another cool thing is... The fetch lands do not specify that the land enters the battlefield tapped. So, if I'm playing turn 1, and I really, really need a red mana for a lightning bolt, I could play, let's say, a Scalding Tarn, tap it, pay 1 life, sacrifice it, go get, let's say, a Steam Vents, which is the red-blue shock land, pay 2 life, and then have an untapped red or blue mana right now to use. It does cost you a lot of life, admittedly, but life is a resource. If you can use some amount of life in order to achieve a workable play, then go for it. And the biggest thing that you're getting out of your fetches and shocks when used in tandem is reliability. You can have any of your colors of mana, which means that if you have a fetch land in hand, a lot of the times you can keep a lot of different opening hands. You don't need to mulligan for the right hand. You can just keep your fetch and assume that you can play the vast majority of cards in your deck. That's power. Someone argue that the best card in Modern is Lightning Bolt, the classic burn spell. It's one red mana for an instant. 
it deals 3 damage to target creature or player. Lightning Bolt is an extraordinarily flexible card. It provides great removal, and it's why 3 toughness matters a lot in modern. Having more than that is very important for a creature because Bolt is so common. It does everything you want to do. Generally speaking, cheap removal is really important to modern. In white, you see Path to Exile a lot. Path to Exile is white for an instant. It exiles target creature, and its controller gets a basic land and puts it onto the battlefield tapped. Along the lines of removal, kind of, Jacob made an allusion to hand disruption earlier. One of the best examples is Thoughtseize. It helps you disable combos, it helps you get the best creature out of your opponent's hand, and it's a more kind of... Calling it removal is a bit charitable, but it's a proactive piece of removal rather than reactive. Those are some of the most defining spells in Modern, but by far, the defining creature of Modern is the Tarmogoyf. Tarmogoyf is one in a green for a creature, Lurgoyf. It's a star, star plus one, where star is the number of card types in all graveyards. Tarmogoyf can get really big really quickly in Modern. Especially when you could almost guarantee it will be fed by lands because you're using fetch lands. They'll be sacrificed and be put into your graveyard. After that, it only takes one bolt or another instant of some kind, and you're already getting more value than you would usually get for two mana. Technically speaking, at max, a Tarmogoyf could be an 8-9 since there are eight card types. Creature, instant, sorcery, artifact, enchantment, planeswalker, land, and tribal, which, yes, is a card type, not a super type. It's confusing, I know. It won't usually get that big, but achieving one that's a 3-4, a 4-5, 4-2 is not uncommon. Also, since we have talked about both Bolt and Tarmogoyf, I'm going to take a little bit of like a judgy rules tan- a judgy rules tangent. I'm going to be really- I'm going to judge these rules. I'm going to be like, are you sure you want to wear that magic comprehensive rules? Wow, that's a little judgy, Bryce. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. A little bit of rules interaction for you, and maybe this will save you if you ever need to bolt a Tarmogoyf. It's about state-based actions. State-based actions is the name for the process that occurs at many points throughout Magic, whenever players cast spells, when they activate abilities, when any time priority is passed around. Whenever you have the opportunity to do a thing, state-based actions are checked in between that. And they clean up a lot of things, including creatures dying from lethal damage and players losing the game. Now let's take a scenario where your opponent has a Tarmogoyf that is a 2-3, and there's a, let's say, land and sorcery in the graveyard. If you attempt to lightning bolt that 2-3, the Tarmogoyf will not die. The reason being, state-based actions. When the spell resolves, lightning bolt is now in a graveyard. The Tarmogoyf is going to be a 3-4 before the spell resolves. Then, state-based actions are going to check when it's resolved to see if it has died from lethal damage. It does have three damage marked on it, but it also realizes that it has four toughness now. So the Tarmogoyf, in that case, will not die. That is not especially relevant to today's podcast, but it's a lovely factoid, and it really could mean the difference between winning and losing a game against a Tarmogoyf. One of the last things that we'll talk about with regards to modern as a format in general is the use of the ban list as a tool to adjust modern. Recently, we've seen bans being used in standard, and honestly, that's kind of uncommon. It's weird that we're seeing so many bans go back and forth in standard. Standard is usually developed 
a little bit more carefully such that bands don't need to come in to adjust the format. Things are accounted for. But modern isn't tested as rigorously as standard is because the card pool is just gigantic. We can't keep looking out for all the different combos that can arise in modern and also guarantee that we're making a good draft format and a good standard format. So R&D uses the ban list to adjust when new threats start looming at the edge of modern, or sometimes when new threats just storm the gate and crash through modern and destroy the metagame for a couple months. Now, if I had to guess, Jacob, I would think you're indicating Eldrazi Winter. I, I might be indicating Eldrazi Winter. Eldrazi Winter was a period of time where, after all of the new colorless Eldrazi came out for Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch, uh, Eye of Ugin became a very, very good land card. Eye of Ugin is a land. It says, Colorless Eldrazi spells you cast cost two less to cast, and it has seven tap, search your library for a colorless creature card, reveal it, and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Eye of Ugin was in some ways balanced when it was released in World Wake. Well, okay, it was balanced when it was released in World Wake because Eldrazi didn't exist until the following set. But it was even balanced in Rise of the Eldrazi because all the colorless Eldrazi were quite large to avoid doing too much color pie breaking at lower costs. But then in Oath of the Gatewatch and Battle for Zendikar, we had low mana colorless Eldrazi, including two mana Eldrazi, this was really broken. You could drop your hand on turn one or two because they cost two less to cast. They were free. Ayavugan demonstrates that a lot of cards are banned in a fairly large context. Eldrazi decks were becoming simply too prevalent. They were too good, and they were a huge percentage of the metagame. Banning Eye of Ugin, in this case, banned a given deck into fairness-ish, into playability. There are some decks that are simply too good and banning their key card will prevent them from existing any longer. This is an example of a deck that is still around, and in fact, we will talk about it pretty soon. Eldrazi still exists in some forms, usually piggybacking off of an earlier archetype called Tron, which we'll get into maybe a bit later. But combo decks are often just completely destroyed by key ban list components. Splinter Twin was in the format for a long long time as a deck and just got the twin component of it banned out of the blue the card splinter twin is two red red for an enchantment aura enchant creature the enchanted creature has tap create a token that's a copy of this creature it gains haste exile it at the beginning of the next end step the deck would use two creatures deceiver exarch and pestermite that are three mana can be cast at instant speed and when they enter they tap or untap a permanent so you would frequently see as a turn three play, end of your turn, I flash this thing in. Turn four, I put a Splinter Twin on it, and I make infinite copies of it and kill you. I use its untap trigger to untap the thing with Splinter Twin. A critical component of modern decks, especially modern combo decks, or really any combo deck, is reliability. If you have a combo based around getting two cards together, and you have four of each of them, that is not usually a reliable enough combo for modern. Oftentimes, you'll want five to eight copies of whatever your combo pieces are. For example, I've talked about eggs on a couple of different occasions in different contexts, because I do have an EDH eggs-style deck. Eggs was a deck that was really dirty. It took forever to combo out. 
but it was based upon sacrificing and reanimating all of your artifacts repeatedly. The card that was banned and pushed eggs out of the spotlight at the time was Second Sunrise. It's one white-white for an instant. Each player returns to the battlefield all artifacts, enchantments, creatures, and lands that were put into the graveyard from the battlefield this turn. There's a similar card called Faith's Reward, which is three and a white for an instant that says, you return all your permanents that left the battlefield, went to the graveyard this turn. The deck would play four second sunrises usually, and some number of Faith's Rewards. The banning of second sunrise, which is the most efficient version of this effect, made the deck significantly less playable. Now that we've given you impressions of Modern as a format, and a little bit about the ban list, let's start going deck by deck. I foresee this possibly being a long-running segment, because there are a lot of Tier 1 and 2 Modern decks that are very interesting to talk about, and we'll only have time for a couple today. Since we've already begun to discuss it, let's talk about Eldrazi. The Eldrazi deck, before Ayavugan was banned, focused a little bit more on aggressive plays of a bunch of small Eldrazi creatures. The current deck, as Jacob stated, is a little more similar to the deck known as Tron. Tron, the term, comes from Voltron, the, the giant robot assembled of different parts, because the idea of a Tron deck is assembling the Urzatron. There are three lands, Urza's Mine, Urza's Power Plant, and Urza's Tower. If you control one of each of these lands, the Mine taps for two colorless mana instead of one, the Power Plant does the same, and the Tower taps for three mana instead of one. So a trio of Tron lands gets you seven colorless mana. Tron is a deck that can show up in a lot of colors, since its base concept is colorless. Common cards to be dropped off of your assembled Tron lands are Wormcoil Engine, which is 6 mana for an artifact creature Worm. It's a 6-6 six, six with Death Touch and Lifelink. When it dies, you create a 3-3 three, three Worm with Death Touch and a 3-3 three, three Worm with Lifelink. Karn Liberated, which is a Planeswalker for 7 mana, enters with 6 loyalty counters. Plus four, target player exiles a card from their hand. Minus three, exile target permanent. And minus 14, restart the game, keeping in exile all non-Aura permanents exiled with Karn liberated. Then put these cards onto the battlefield under your control. So in essence, you're dropping massive beater or very powerful removal. Tron decks also like to include Chromatic Star and Chromatic Sphere, which are artifacts that can sacrifice, draw you a card, and filter your mana into a color. They help you move through the deck, they help you ensure that you have the color to cast the handful of non-colorless spells the deck will use. And the vast majority of straight-up Tron decks will also use cards like Ancient Stirrings and Expedition Map to get your Tron lands out as fast as possible. Ancient Stirrings is green for a sorcery. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a colorless card from among them and put it into your hand, then put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. So it's a nice way to achieve a, a kind of quality control. And because most of the deck is colorless, your lands and your colorless spells, you get a lot of options. Expedition Map is an artifact, one to play, two to sacrifice, to search your library for a land, any land, and put it into your hand. It's very similar to the sorcery Sylvan Scrying, which is one in a green to go search for any land. All of these together give Tron a tremendous reliability in assembling the Urzatron lands and proceeding through to its giant colorless things. Now, Eldrazi Tron. The central cards of Eldrazi Tron are some of those Oath of the Gatewatch Eldrazi that can only be cast off 
colorless mana, not generic mana. Perhaps the three most prominent are, first, Matter Reshaper. It's two and a colorless for a 3-2 Eldrazi that when it dies, you reveal the top card of your library. If it is a permanent card with converted mana cost three or less, you put it onto the battlefield, otherwise you draw it. Thought Not Seer, which is three and a colorless for a 4-4 Eldrazi. When it enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals their hand, you choose a non-land card from it and exile it, and then when it leaves the battlefield, target opponent draws a card, and Reality Smasher. It's four and a colorless for a 5-5 five, five Trample Haste. When it becomes a target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell unless its controller discards a card. And perhaps you can see the power and reliability in this deck. You have a 3-2 three, for three, a 4-4 four, four for four, a 5-5 five, five for five. The 3-2 three, for three guaranteed almost, unless it gets exiled, replaces itself. Maybe by just putting another version of it or a land onto the battlefield, but if nothing else, you draw a card. Then there's Thought Not Seer. We talked about how important hand disruption is. This creature is, it's kind of aping the style of the, the Faceless Butcher, uh, Tide Hollow Sculler, which let you exile a card from someone's hand until the creature leaves the battlefield, at which point they get it back. This is much better! This is, I get rid of the best card in your hand, and then you draw a card. You don't get back the card that you lost. And finally, Reality Smasher, it has two keywords. It has haste. It's a 5-5 five, five for 5 with trample and haste. That's tremendous. And on top of that, when they try to remove it, they're going to two-for-one themselves. They have to spend two cards to get rid of this thing. This is some of what makes Eldrazi a powerful deck. And maybe you now understand how ridiculous it would have been to drop a matter reshaper on turn two for one mana, maybe followed by another matter reshaper. Or more specifically, dropping, like, an Eldrazi Mimic for free, because it's a two-mana Eldrazi. Anyway. I love the way that Eldrazi Tron has grown out of the earlier Tron archetype, because the decks are actually pretty distinct. The original Tron is way more concerned about getting all of these lands out immediately and dropping your Karn Liberated to scare your opponent. But Eldrazi Tron is a little bit more of a grindy mid-range deck. It's got a lot more disruption. Its creatures are resilient, and you're dropping them earlier than you might otherwise, but you're not trying to get this, this speedy land plan out. If you get your Tron assembled, that's great, but you don't need it as immediately as original Tron decks did. And as you can probably tell from the creatures we outlined, there's a great mana curve in there of Eldrazi. Mm -hmm. So you really can have it play every turn regardless of whether you've achieved Tron or not. Oh, right. The next archetype that I want to talk to you about is, well, it's a little bit more simple. It's been around in pretty much every format for as long as Magic's been around. This is Burn. Burn has a linear game plan. It wants to make your life total zero as fast as possible. And to do so, it uses the quintessential burn spells. We talked at length about Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt is three damage for one mana, and you're trying to cram your burn deck with as many of three damage for one mana as you can. In fact, Lightning Bolt is so good that burn decks use a lot of mostly worse versions of it. Two of those spells that I've probably seen in, in nearly every modern burn deck is Lava Spike, which is red for a sorcery of type arcane. It deals three damage to target player, so that's two degrees worse. It's a sorcery, and it only hits a player. And there's Rift Bolt, 
which is two and a red for a sorcery. It deals three damage to target creature or player, and it has suspend one for red. So you can pay red, it goes into exile for a turn with a time counter, at your upkeep you remove the time counter and cast it. Those are pretty slow compared to an instant speed three damage, but Lightning Bolt is good enough, and this deck is focused enough on killing your opponents as fast as possible through that damage that they still use these mostly worse bolts. The other red cards in the deck are almost an aggro ground plan. You see a lot of Goblin Guide in these decks. Goblin Guide is one red mana for a creature, Goblin Scout. It has haste. It's a 2-2. And whenever Goblin Guide attacks, defending player reveals the top card of their library. If it's a land card, that player puts it into their hand. Goblin Guide comes down on turn one and just starts swinging away. A lot of times you don't care about them getting that little extra bit of card advantage because your plan is all about damage. On top of that, revealing the top card of their library is not always a downside. It's a downside if you gave them a land, but it's actually pretty useful in terms of information because they're revealing a card. The majority of their deck is not lands. Two-thirds of the time, they will just show you what they're drawing next turn. Another prominent card in burn decks, and also a lot of blue-red decks like Delver, is Monastery Swift Spear, occasionally nicknamed Taylor Swift Spear. <laughs> Red for a 1-2 creature human monk with haste and prowess. So whenever you cast a non-creature spell, she gets plus one plus one until end of turn. It turns out burn decks have a lot of non-creature spells. The ability to get in that much extra damage or to wreak havoc with your opponent's mind is fantastic. You can never know against a burn deck what a favorable block looks like. Actually, you probably do, because it probably isn't favorable to block when they can get prowess triggers and also just bolt your creature. Another creature that you'll often see in burn decks is Eidolon of the Great Rebel. Red red for a 2-2 enchantment creature, Spirit. Whenever a player casts a spell with converted mana cost 3 or less, Eidolon of the Great Rebel deals 2 damage to that player. Now, at first blush, this might seem a little counterintuitive. I'm playing a lot of one-mana spells, and this is going to deal some damage to me. But you don't care about your life total, you care about the opponent's life total hitting zero as fast as possible. And Modern has a very low curve compared to something like Standard. So this, over the course of a game, is going to make them either not play their spells, which means that they're going to be losing, or... They're going to take more damage and accrue a lot of damage over time, which means that they're going to be losing. It's kind of a this hurts you more than it hurts me line of reasoning. Almost every spell in most burn decks will injure you off of Eidolon. But as long as your opponent is hitting themselves at at least the same pace, you're getting closer to killing them. Because when you cast a lightning bolt, you'll deal three to them and three to yourself. And when they cast their spells, they'll just take three. Hopping back again, I want to talk about Affinity because I I just love this deck. I really like artifacts, and Affinity is an artifact aggro deck. The Affinity deck is built around, originally, the mechanic Affinity, which says that a spell costs one less to cast for any number of given things. There was a cycle of cards that had Affinity for a basic land type, but most of them had Affinity for artifacts. The funny thing is, the Affinity deck almost never plays any cards that have affinity in it, but the name has stuck, and it's evolved over the years, especially with Scars of Mirrodin block. First, let's talk about the land base. Affinity has a land base unlike any other deck in Modern. For one, it uses almost no, or usually no, Shocklands or Fetchlands. Especially prominent is Darksteel Citadel, the only artifact land that is not banned in Modern. 
It's an artifact land, it's indestructible, and it taps for one colorless mana. To assist with the aggro strategy, you have Blink Moth Nexus and Ink Moth Nexus. Blink Moth Nexus is a land, tap at one to your mana pool. One, Blink Moth Nexus becomes a 1-1 Blink Moth artifact creature with flying until end of turn, it's still a land. And one tap, target Blink Moth creature gets plus one plus one until end of turn. Then there's Ink Moth Nexus, which is a land, it taps for one colorless. And it has one. Ink Moth Nexus becomes a 1-1 Blink Moth artifact creature with flying and infect until end of turn. It's still a land. So even your land base is or can become artifacts and help you deal damage to your opponents, maybe poison damage. To help with the occasional bits of colored mana that you need, you have Glimmer Void and Spire of Industry more recently. Glimmer Void is a land that says, at the beginning of the end step, if you control no artifacts, sacrifice Glimmer Void, and it has tap, Add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Spire of Industries is a land that says tap, add colorless to your mana pool. Tap, pay one life, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Activate this ability only if you control an artifact. Now, moving along to the meat of the deck, the artifacts and artifact creatures. There are two key pieces of mana acceleration that help Affinity vomit out its hand very early. One is Mox Opal. It's zero mana for a legendary artifact with Metalcraft. Tap. Add one mana of any color to your mana pool, but activate this ability only if you control three or more artifacts. The other is Springleaf Drum. It's a one mana artifact with tap, tap an untapped creature you control, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. This becomes especially powerful because Affinity runs many copies, at least four, often more, of zero mana artifact creatures, such as Ornithopter, which is a zero two flying artifact creature for zero, or Memnite, which is a 1-1 on-the-ground artifact creature construct, also 4-0. Affinity is a deck that is looking to punch you out, and one of the best ways that it can assist that is with Cranial Plating. It's a 2-mana artifact equipment. Equip creature gets plus 1, plus 0 for each artifact you control. Black, black. Attach Cranial Plating to target creature you control. And it has Equip 1, so you can do it at instant speed with some black mana, or at sorcerer speed for 1 with any color of mana. There are a great many other aggressive artifact creatures, but perhaps the headliner is Arcbound Ravager. It's 2 mana for an artifact creature beast. It is a 0-0 with modular 1, which means that it enters the battlefield with 1 counter on it. And when it dies, you may move its plus 1 plus 1 counter onto target artifact creature. It also has, sacrifice an artifact, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on Arcbound Ravager. The key interaction here is that it does not specify that it can't sacrifice itself. So during combat, you can swing out with a couple of artifact creatures and an Arcbound Ravager, see how they block, and then sacrifice all of the blocked creatures to the Arcbound Ravager, then sacrifice the Arcbound Ravager to itself to put a bunch of counters on the unblocked creature. There are a couple of other neat artifact creatures that are central to the deck, but I think that's enough for now. Affinity tends to be the boogeyman of the modern format when it gets really strong. As Bryce said earlier, it ebbs and flows, but when Affinity is at its peak, a lot of people get really, hmm, upset is a polite way to describe it. The vocal complaints about Affinity being some of the strongest decks in modern reliably over the years tend to pile up. And the funny thing is that Affinity is a deck that is relatively easily hated out. We didn't talk much about sideboarding in our overview. Sideboarding is a huge part of modern. Some would argue the most difficult and most critical skill. Because your 15-card sideboard is there for situationally useful cards. 
to help you against matchups that you can't normally win. And that varies so much from metagame to metagame. Now, if you're the proest of the pros and competing at the highest level, you might have a baseline idea of the metagame there. But if I'm going to a local game store, if I go to three different local game stores that play modern, the metagame of those stores will differ. They could be entirely different. In one, there might be affinity decks everywhere, which means my sideboard probably needs a lot of artifact hate. In the next one, there might be none, and that's just wasted sideboard space. So because there are many mass artifact removal spells, affinity sometimes, when it's really, really flowing, will get hated out by all those in the sideboard. And perhaps I spoke too soon when I talked about the boogeyman of the modern format, because the next deck that we're going to talk about is Storm. Though, Boogeyman in a less competitive sense. It dipped down in prominence for a long time and was pretty firmly tier 2. I think it might be on a little bit of an upswing right now. The scary thing about Storm is that it keeps coming back despite prominent bans. Like, Affinity ebbs and flows because of the metagame. Storm keeps getting cards removed from the deck, and then it slowly grows back as more cards get added into the modern card pool. The crux of a Storm deck is the Storm mechanic. A spell with Storm gets a copy of it for every spell that has been cast before it this turn. This is colloquially referred to as the Storm Count, so as you cast more spells, a spell with Storm becomes more and more potent. The idea behind Storm is to cast as many spells as possible, cast a single spell with Storm that will then win you the game. The most common example in a modern Storm deck is Grapeshot. Grapeshot is one and a red for a sorcery. Grapeshot deals one damage to target creature or player, but it has Storm. One small reason I love the Storm mechanic is because every card sounds underwhelming until you say Storm. It's so unassuming until you realize just how powerful Storm is as a mechanic. It's very easy to get a high Storm count and lethally Grapeshot someone. The way that you typically do it in modern is by casting a bunch of ritual spells. These are spells that are one single spell that accelerates your mana by just a little bit. But if you can chain them, then you can get a high storm count. So some of the examples for a storm deck nowadays are Pyretic Ritual. Pyretic Ritual is one in a red for an instant. Add red, red, red to your mana pool. Manamorphose is one and a Gruel Hybrid, so that's either red or green mana, usually red if you're playing Storm. An instant that adds two mana in any combination of colors to your mana pool, so you don't go down on mana when you cast Manamorphose. And you draw a card. Basically, you can keep drawing cards out of your deck so that you can keep casting rituals, and Manamorphose acts as a free increase your storm count by one. That's the real text of this card. Metamorphose is even funnier in Storm decks that run Pyromancer's Ascension. And I'm not sure how popular that card is in the current Storm iterations, but it is a really, really neat card. Pyromancer Ascension is one in a red for an enchantment. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell that has the same name as a card in your graveyard, you may put a quest counter on Pyromancer Ascension. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell while Pyromancer's Ascension has two or more quest counters on it, you may copy that spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. So with an online Pyromancer Ascension, your Manamorphose becomes 2 mana, get 4 mana, draw 2 cards, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that Pyromancer Ascension is less prominent recently is because there's a lot more graveyard hate showing up in sideboard to deal with, with certain deck archetypes. And that incidentally hoses this style of Storm. 
Another card that used to appear only in, in certain reanimation contexts and now appears in Storm very frequently is Gifts Ungiven. It's three and a blue for an instant. Switch your library for four cards with different names and reveal them. Target opponent chooses two of those cards, put the chosen cards into your graveyard and the rest into your hand, then shuffle your library. This is especially good when you give your opponent a, a kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't trade. Storm runs Pass in Flames, a sorcery with flashback that can give all of your instant sorceries flashback till end of turn, which means you can cast them from your graveyard. So getting your opponent a couple spells and a Pass in Flames means that regardless of their choice, you are going to cast some of those spells. Finally, cost reduction is key. Storm almost always plays four copies of Goblin Electromancer, which is red-blue for a 2-2 Goblin Wizard that reduces the cost of your instant and sorcery spells. More recently, they've also added in Baral, Chief of Compliance. He's one in a blue for a 1-3 Legendary Creature Human Wizard that makes your instant sorceries cost one less to cast, and whenever a spell or ability you control counters a spell, you may draw a card if you do discard a card. Admittedly, I don't think there's a ton of counter magic in most Storm decks, so his second ability isn't relevant all the time, but his first ability almost always is. We'll bring you guys one last deck for this Modern Archetypes episode, and that is Fish, or Merfolk. Merfolk is, get this, a mono-blue aggro deck. It happens that there are two cards in Modern that are two twos for two, they're Merfolk, and they give all your other Merfolk plus one plus one an island walk. There's Lord of Atlantis, and there's Master of the Pearl, Trident. Fish, put simply, utilizes a lot of merfolk and a lot of lords to smack your opponents into submission. A critical card with the island walking is Spreading Seas. It's one in a blue for an enchantment aura, enchant land. When it enters the battlefield, draw a card. Enchanted land is an island. Not only does it turn on your island walk, it also means that you can remove your opponent's mana flexibility. If they just fetched and shocked to go get their temple garden in their, like, Black, green, white Obzon deck, as opposed to any color Obzon deck. <laughs> you gave them a useless land. Well, not useless. They can still use it for generic costs. But it is decent land hate for hampering your opponent's strategy. Another key card is Either Vile. Either Vile is one mana for an artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may put a charge counter on it. Tap. You may put a creature with converted mana costs equal to the number of charge counters on Either Vile from your hand onto the battlefield. Because the Merfolk deck curve is so low, mostly 1 and 2 mana creatures, you drop a lot of Merfolk relatively cheaply, and this means that you can cast one on your turn and still leave up the possibility of violing one in. This is especially dangerous during combat and with some of your more reactive Merfolk, like Curse Catcher. Curse Catcher is blue for a 1-1 Merfolk wizard. You can sacrifice it to counter an instant or sorcery unless its controller pays 1. There's also, more recently, Harbinger of the Tides from Magic Origins. It's a 2-2 for blue-blue. You may cast it as though it had flashed if you pay 2 more, and when it enters the battlefield, you may return a tapped creature and opponent controls to its owner's hand. Oh, I forgot to mention there's one more lord that isn't 2 mana. That's Marrow Regery. 2 and a blue for a 2-2 Merfolk Soldier. Other Merfolk creatures you control get plus one plus one. When you cast a Merfolk spell, you may tap or untap target permanent. One last card I will call out in Merfolk is Mutavault, which is a land. It taps for one colorless mana, and it has one. It becomes a 2-2 creature with all creature types until end of turn. It's still a land. That might sound kind of just okay until you realize that all creature types means it's a Merfolk, and it gets all the Lord <laughs> benefits. Actually, I lied. 
Some other interesting lands that show up in Merfolk, because I love lands. <laughs> One is Cavern of Souls. It's a land, as it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Tap, add colorless to your mana pool. Or tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool, but spend it only to cast a creature spell of the chosen type, and that spell can't be countered. Then there's often Oboro Palace in the Clouds. It's a legendary land. Tap, add blue to your mana pool. One, return it to its owner's hand. Oboro is weird, because it's not very useful to bounce it. It's mostly like an island. However, there's an enchantment called Choke, which makes islands not untap during their controllers on tap step. It's a very popular piece of sideboard hate against especially Merfolk, since it is one of the only mono-blue decks, and it shows up a lot when Merfolk is a prominent deck in the format. Having Oboro and other lands that are functionally islands but aren't actually islands simply helps you get choked less. I think that'll do it for our first Modern Archetypes episode. We only got through, I don't know, maybe five deck archetypes after the overview, so I imagine we'll see a couple more of these over the next couple months. I know that there are definitely some deck types that I still want to talk about. Scred is going to take so long, so I don't want to start it right now, but oh. We'll get there. Maybe we can start off the next episode with that. That'd be nice. Modern, while it's not an archetype that I necessarily enjoy playing, I really do enjoy knowing and learning about it, because there is still interesting deck building going on there, and choices, and the skill level required for higher level modern play is so impressive to watch. And that's why me as a Commander Fiend will still really enjoy bringing you these modern episodes. Now, Jacob, if someone wanted a sneak peek of all the things you're going to say about Scred, where could they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit, and there's so much. There's so much that I could go on. There's like five different primers that I'm going to pull from, and I'm going to have so much fun. And, Bryce, if someone wanted to ask you about some of the decks that we didn't talk about that you still have an affinity for, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on Tumblr as Walking Atlas, on Twitter as Walking underscore Atlas, and you can email us at the.atlas.walks at gmail.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, opalnebula.com. We are cross-posting our episodes to SoundCloud and Opal Nebula in the month of May, but after that, we're going to be swapping over to Opal Nebula. If you are subscribed to the RSS feed through bit.ly slash atlaspodcast, we'll make sure to switch that stream to the Opal Nebula one, so that shouldn't interrupt your service at all. If you are subscribed to the SoundCloud RSS feed specifically, I highly encourage you to go to opalnebula.com and listen there. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingatlas. Thanks so much for listening to our first foray through the modern format, and until next time, happy planeswalking.